Well, hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Cricket Stitchings. My name is Lauren, and I am so excited to be back here for an episode after a long hiatus. <laughs> um, turns out that putting my house back together again after our Christmas time house fire was uh, slightly more stressful and mentally exhausting than I anticipated. But I am really excited to be back for new podcast episodes and all the things that I used to do a lot more regularly that I just haven't really had um, the bandwidth to do lately. So those things in my personal life have finally wrapped up and we are back to living like normal people and I'm really excited to be back here. I wanted to just kind of come on here and say hey because I know that it's been a long time. For those of you that are longtime listeners, you I'm sure noticed more than the newer listeners, but I'm excited to have some new episodes and this is the one that is going to kind of kick off a new series of different things that we're gonna talk about over the next several weeks. Um, this was an episode that I recorded back um, in February, I believe, maybe the end of January. I can't quite remember, but it's been several months now. And this episode is an interview episode with John Lincoln, from Go Imagine. They reached out to me about having him on the podcast and I wanted to have the conversation, honestly, just selfishly, <laughs> um, because I've heard a lot about Go Imagine and I wanted to hear his thoughts and sort of the behind the scenes look at the business and all of that. But I also chose this one to kick off new episodes and kind of a new, I don't want to say a new direction, but kind of a new direction in where I want to go with this podcast and upcoming episodes and things that I'm going to be teaching and all of that. I think in 2023, it is not a wise business decision to have all of your eggs in one basket. I think the Etsy platform has changed dramatically, certainly since the pandemic um, and throughout the pandemic, but even more so, I would say, in like the last year. I think that the state of e-commerce has changed a lot and I think that it is very smart to be looking toward the next thing and new platforms, new technology, new ideas um, and visions for the future and also just diversifying. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode with John. I really enjoyed having it um, and I would, as always, I would love to hear your thoughts. So again, thank you guys for hanging in with me through the last few months of um, chaos in my personal life and um, kind of dropping off the face of the internet world. And I'm really excited to be back with new episodes and to connect with you all once again. I hope you enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cricket Stitch Chings. My name is Lauren. And today on this episode, I am really excited to be able to have this conversation with the guests today. Having this podcast sometimes gives me the opportunity to connect with people that I might not otherwise connect with. And today is one of those. We have with us John Lincoln, who is the founder of Go Imagine. And I am super excited to jump in with him and hear about his vision for how they're disrupting marketplace selling and where they are headed. So welcome, John. Uh, thanks for having me, Lauren. I'm excited to be here. 
Yeah. Actually, you might be the first male guest I've ever had on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. The handmade world does uh, often skew female. Yeah. So I'm really excited to hear about, you know, what y'all have been doing for the past few years and just kind of your thoughts on e-commerce and selling platforms and stuff. So can you kind of give us your story? How did you get here? (laughs) How did this start? Yeah, you know, so uh, I've been somewhat of a serial entrepreneur, and uh, much like a lot of the people listening here are probably entrepreneurs as well. And that usually means it's kind of a wavy line from where you start to where you end up. And uh, after different ventures, not going too far into the past, about eight years ago, I did start a software company in the insurance industry, specifically insurance agencies, and I built a product on salesforce.com. And that was when I really got into building software products with a team. and. I was lucky enough to raise about $7 million in building that company, and we had grown it pretty well, brought it to over a $44 million valuation. But through all that time working and running the other company, like every entrepreneur, and you can attest to this, Lauren, you work days, nights, weekends, 60, 70 hours a week. It's you know blood, sweat, and tears getting a company going. And around, I want to say 2019 is when I just started getting a little burnt out more so from the mission of where we ended up. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was fortunate to raise a lot of money from investors. But what that means is when you raise money from investors, eventually the mission of the company is really focused on paying back the investors. The whole idea of investing is that they're going to get returns. And that's a wonderful model, except from a fulfilling aspect when it comes to me, it became, okay, well, I'm working so hard in my life just to make wealthy people more wealthy. It just wasn't really, you know, it wasn't fulfilling, I guess, in that aspect. So around 2019 was when I decided to exit my last company because I had this nagging feeling that I could do something a little more philanthropic. And specifically, I was looking at marketplaces and and how they operate. The reality is a marketplace is nothing but a connector between buyers and sellers, right? That's what they are. It's not about the tech as much as it is about the community that is supporting it. And marketplaces have become what I consider Wall Street darlings because they're so scalable. What are called network effects grow them to billion-dollar companies. And that's why every week you see another IPO for an Uber, a Lyft, a DoorDash, Upwork, Amazon, eBay, Etsy, and the list goes on. And I was like, well, what if we could create a world where marketplaces existed for buyers and sellers or buyers and service providers to connect But the profits generated between those transactions went to good causes instead of just going to investors and shareholders, right? So that was the basis of this idea when I left my last company was I wanted to start a marketplace focused on social good. From there, I looked at different marketplace models and a good friend of mine, her name is Stephanie Romke, and she's now a partner in in Go Imagine. She's an artist. She's a graphic designer by trade. She's been an Etsy seller. She's been a handmade handmade seller for many years. And she's very tied into that network. And so I was talking with her one day and I said, tell me more about Etsy. And uh, I got an earful (laughs) when it comes to (laughs) Etsy and kind of where they are today. And I will say that I am very much in awe of Etsy. I think they're a fantastic company, but it's not surprising the direction, the moves they've made because they, much like I was in my last company, are geared towards the investor needs. They're not geared towards the maker's needs or towards the needs of society simply because of the business model. I mean, there's nothing, again, I try to say there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it is what it is. 
And so that's why when talking with Stephanie, who really has the maker background, we started this project and it began as a Facebook community. And then I started building the product with some of the tech people I know. And here we are today with thousands of makers and artists on Go Imagine, all selling their wares and all of the profits of the company are, are going to charity. Yeah. I really like that story. And, you know, I mean, I'm not here to say anything bad about Etsy, but I agree with you like that. I started selling on Etsy like almost 11 years ago. So mm-hmm. this was like before the IPO and all of that. And it has definitely changed. And what I tell people all the time is like, you can love it or hate it. It really doesn't matter. Nobody ultimately cares if you love it or hate it. It's a publicly traded company. And that just is how they work. <laughs> But there's definitely like negatives to that. I mean, there's been a lot of changes with that that allow profits to grow at the expense of other things. Right. And, and again, Etsy is a fantastic company. We've had a lot of conversations about this in my community as well around Etsy and the fact that, you know, they provide a great living to a lot of makers out there. It's just the unfortunate reality is that as they've grown, they've had to make financial decisions based on the needs of their investors. And if you look back at 2007, 2007, 2008 was when the first venture capitalist invested in Etsy. This is back only a year and a half into their existence. They got VC capital. And as soon as you get venture capital, the immediate desire there is saying that we need to 10x this company and pay back our investors huge returns. And the way I perceive this is that for the first 10 years of Etsy, they could live in the handmade space. And they could grow wildly successful because handmade is pretty darn big. It's a billion, $2 billion industry. What happened though, was when they started to dominate the space and couldn't keep growing. When it was like, okay, we're, most people would say you're a $2 billion company. Congratulations. You won now just sustain. (laughs) But if you're a $2 billion company and you want to become a $10 billion company, what do you have to do? Well, you've got to allow production partners in, right? You've got to allow, you have to start making changes. And so what I tell our own makers too, is that it's not that Etsy changed really. It's just that, how do I put it? Your relationship with Etsy has to change because they aren't the community feel that they used to be. I would a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. I think that that is a real, like, it's been really interesting to me and then we'll shift away from Etsy, but it's been really interesting to me over the years to have that conversation with people to say like, this is not like your knitting circle, you know, full of like people who care about you. Like this is a company like Apple, like Microsoft, like they don't care about you. (laughs) And so you got to watch out for yourself, which is kind of always true, but more so in certain situations than others. And that has become more and more clear over the years. Absolutely. And, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't sell on them either. I encourage every Go Imagine seller to sell on Etsy. It's for your own uh, diversification. I mean, sell on Etsy. Sell sell where the money is. Their audience is too big to ignore. And to a certain degree, to your point, I feel like with Go Imagine, we're coming in as that other half. Etsy is the big behemoth with tons of buyers. And now we're trying to grow a more community-oriented, socially good aspect marketplace. And in a perfect world, and my dream is that as we grow Go Imagine, we become very successful there's now going to be two platforms that makers can sell on and make a good living. One that is geared just towards the ruthless e-commerce, but then the other one that is that community that's trying to do good in the world and hopefully, you know, work together to do better things. Yeah. 
And I love that. And I'm glad y'all are around because for years and years, I've waited like, why isn't there any competition in this space? Why isn't anyone ever else stepping into this space? It is clearly there's the demand, there's the profitability for the company, but like people want something different. They want not a multi-billion dollar corporation. Like they want the sellers, the community of artisans wants something else. And so I'm glad y'all, <laughs> I'm glad y'all saw that too. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it's actually, I think the internet in general and how the internet was kind of the wild west for the past 20 years. You know, it was like an open landscape where anyone could say, I'm going to be the Uber of this or the Amazon of that and just own a space on the internet. And uh, it's starting to, to really mature to the point now that I think society is going, oh gosh, what just happened? <laughs> like, right. People are waking up like, uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah, we've created these monsters. And like you said, like, then you get these people making $30 million a year with, you know, flying off to the Caymans. And then the rest of us are like, hey, yeah, can well, I have a little piece of that? <laughs> I wrote actually a blog post about this too, is, is in my mind, when you look at marketplaces in the real world, right, your traditional public marketplaces, towns across America, you have your town common that has a marketplace for farmers stands and maybe their high school field they use or they use their quads. And and there's some really big ones, you know, in Seattle, there's Pike's Market. All of these were, if you look at this traditional marketplace, they were a public space for vendors to sell. And it was for this public good. It was for society. Oftentimes they were owned by the city or the public and they might even charge rent, but where did that rent go? It went to fix the roads. You know, in fact, the one in, in Seattle, the money they get for renting spaces in their public market go to help actually a homeless shelter. Right now, somewhere along the line, what was public marketplaces, your traditional craft fairs, farmer stands, you move online and all of a sudden what was public is now corporate. And what was a public good is now owned by Wall Street simply because we went from the real world to online. And when you look at that, well, the world will only continue to be more and more online. That is the new world we're in. But where are the public places? Where are the socially good places online? Right? They're all owned by Wall Street. So that's kind of a little bit of this mission. And I, I don't mean to get on a soapbox here, but it's saying, you know what? These marketplaces can be a socially good place where they run ethically, help the world, and still provide a service. You're fine on your soapbox. I was laughing because when you say, where are the good places online? <laughs> I think that's a great question. <laughs> it can really be a cutthroat world in the internet space. Yeah. It's happening not just like, you know, obviously being a, in, you're in the handmade world, so everything's about Etsy. But if you look at all other worlds, if you're talking about taxis and drivers, then with Uber and Lyft, or you're talking about, uh, you know, apartment rentals or whatever, and, and Airbnb. And I mean, like, it, it kind of, regardless of what industry you're in, there's that new behemoth coming in online that's kind of swallowing up everything around it. And uh, how, is a, how is a society, can we look at things differently and build them differently? Is kind of the whole thesis here, I guess, if you want to say. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So can you kind of explain when you're looking at the sort of mission of Go Imagine and the social good of the company and how that contributes to like real life society and not just to the internet world? What does that look like? Like, what does that mean to y'all? Yeah. So I guess what I'd say to you, and we, we've thought a lot about it, you know, when you start any company, you know, that's focused on profits to charity or, or charitable giving, the first thing is like, well, 
And day one, there is no money. (laughs) You know, I have nothing to donate. I started the company on my credit card. One thing I did do to start off, though, is I wanted to make sure that we were donating from day one, right? Even if we were losing money. So we have donated over $20,000 to charity so far. If you go to our website and scroll to the bottom, you'll see a list of charities we've donated to so far. They're all children's charities. At first, we've chosen just a few charities that we've... um, you know, interviewed, looked up on Charity Navigator, Charity Watch, and really wanted to make sure they were, you know, quality charities because at the end of the day, there's a lot of scammy ones that are out there. Horizons for Homeless Children, Relief Nursery, look them up on the site. I won't go into all of them, but they're all, I think they're all fantastic charities. Now, that said, it's come up with our vendors in the past, like, okay, well, right now we're kind of choosing the charities to donate to just because we had to choose somebody. The hope would be as we get bigger and we scale that we can get more democratic with our vendors to decide where the money's going. Because at the end of the day, for me, it was never about this specific charity, right? For me, it was about the overall mission to do good with charities and the community can help decide who those charities are in the future. In fact, one of the things we're doing right now to take things to the next level is this year, we're in the process of converting our business model to give shared ownership to our maker community. So um, we just had our first meeting about it uh, in January. We have another one come up in a few weeks. But what we're working on is a model where a percentage of the company is given to our makers. That's going to come with voting rights and board representation. So our maker community is going to elect the board members they want to have represent them on our board. And from there, the makers are going to be more involved in that sort of decision making. As we scale, more money gets donated. At a board level, you have to decide when is money reinvested in the company or you know who's getting paid and all that. Because again, we have to ethically pay our employees. But any monies above that is what will have to be donated to charity. Is that a good explanation of kind of the process? Yeah. Just for my own curiosity, is this set up as a not-for-profit organization or? So technically, we're a benefits corporation. So we are a benefits corporation, which is, is essentially a new government recognition of corporations, but with a charter in the bylaws to do something good in the world, right? So your typical C Corp that has one charter and that is to do always what's in the best interest of the investors, right? Literally when you're a C-Corp, your job is do what's the best interest of the investors. You know, you got a club baby seals, go do it. Doesn't make the investors more money. When it comes to a benefits corporation within the bylaws, you can write things in the bylaws that are, you know, do things for investors as long as X, Y, Z things are met and you'll never go against these specific, you know, ethical boundaries. And for us, it's all profits going to charity. Now, I have looked into if and when we become a full nonprofit. To be clear, there's pros and cons to being a 501c3. Being a 501c3, you actually have a lot more restrictions on what you can do with the money versus being a little more giving, so to speak. The direction we're headed right now is more to bring the makers on as owners in the company to help guide and influence the decisions we make instead of being a technically a nonprofit. And there are other companies. So Newman's Own. Are you familiar with Newman's Own, the salad dressing company? They make great salsa. (laughs) Yeah, good salsa, good dog food. They make a lot of things. Pizza now. Uh, But yeah, so they operated 30 plus years as a for-profit company that gave away all the profits. They had donated over $600 million. Now, after Paul Newman passed away, their model changed a little bit. We can get into that specific. But for the 35 years up until Paul's death, they were a for-profit company that donated all their profits to charity. And that's a little bit of the model that we're kind of putting ourselves after. That's cool. 
So as you guys have developed this company and kind of, you know, I've never started a tech company like this, but I would imagine that you go into it with this idea of what you want to be different than what you already see out there. And like, kind of how did you decide on like you're targeting the handmade community, but there's a lot of people that have a lot of definitions of what constitutes handmade and what crosses over into no longer handmade. I've actually had people say that to me that I monogram baby quilts, but I don't make the quilts themselves. So, you know, it's like sort of a gray area. Is it handmade or not? Kind (laughs) of. So I know exactly where you're going here. And it is an endless debate. Because what constitutes handmade is a very broad question. You know, I mean, for instance, we literally have sellers on our marketplace that have a goat farm. They milk their goats and they make soap out of it. And we have soap makers who buy the, buy the ingredients and make the soap. And if you're going by the purest form, only the, the only person on our marketplace who should be selling socks right now is the alpaca farm we have who actually, you know, shears the alpaca and then makes the socks with it, right? So at what point is handmade? considered handmade. And I think that's where Etsy, and I don't mean to go back to them, but that's where because of that gray line, handmade is a little bit the eye of the beholder. And so as Etsy has grown, they've been able to change the definition of handmade, at least on their platform, right? They basically changed the definition to you know, uh, work for what they consider handmade. We are much tighter in our restrictions of handmade. Currently, we don't allow drop shipping. I personally feel that for something to be handmade, the hands of the maker should actually touch the product at some point and not just uh, you know come from a, from some other manufacturer who actually made the product. So drop shipping is not allowed on our site. So everything has to be made by the hands and sold by the seller and, and delivered by the seller. Now that said, going back to uh, one of the things we want to do with our venture this year into sharing the ownership of the makers is we're going to be creating kind of a maker council within this because we want our maker community to help decide and define what handmade is. So it's going to be interesting in the upcoming year as we open up to our makers the ability to propose and then have a public vote democratically on when any handmade guidelines may or may not change. Maybe they'll never change. And if you go to our website now, right at the bottom, you'll see handmade guidelines and you'll see see what defines handmade for us. But like I said, there's no drop shipping allowed. It has to be made by the seller who ships it. But in your world, Lauren, you absolutely are handmade to us. You know, At the end of the day, you've taken a product and you've altered it by hand. So that makes it handmade. The big thing for me though, is kind of giving that definition to the makers on our platform to decide as time goes on. And I guess if you really want to get into it, Lauren, here's a good example is we don't allow drop shipping. And there are instances where maybe high-end photography prints want to drop ship and they don't have the ability to you know buy these $10,000 printers to do it. So should they be allowed to while people who are just sublimating mugs shouldn't because they should have bought a cricket, you know, that sort of thing. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, there was no right or wrong answer to that. If people tell me that mine are not handmade, I can totally see their angle on it. You know, so my own products, like I can understand if somebody has like a long arm quilting machine and they're making quilts that mine don't feel handmade to them. And I get that. So I think it is like, there's like a gray area where it's like, I mean, I can see where you're coming from. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's interesting. So 
I actually proposed this to our community about a year ago, and it came back with mixed results, I'll call it, in the survey. But I've also thought about the idea of it on our platform to offer the ability for buyers to sort and filter based on, for lack of a better term, degrees of handmade. Are you looking for something that's from scratch, meaning they built it from scratch? Are you looking for something that was hand altered? And then they can actually filter results because, for instance, if you're looking for a mug, well, there's a big difference between, you know, a manufactured mug that had a design printed on it versus a mug that was spun by pot- pottery fresh, right? <laughs> right. So we've thought about how can we create filters so that both makers are allowed on the platform, but at least there's ways to filter down to degrees of that. The other thing we've been thinking about as well is, is there an ability for us to define a maker versus an artist differently? Yeah. And you could be both. But a maker is someone who creates something, but maybe they didn't design it. You know, if maybe you got a pattern for your quilt and then you made it. The artist is someone who creates the design, right? The one who made that pattern or did a, an original drawing. So it's another aspect that we're looking towards. And and as we continue this venture, yeah, these discussions, Lauren, we could talk for the next two hours, you and me, about, you know, I almost want to ask you, like, what do you think, Lauren? Like, <laughs> because this is part of this process. It's a community effort. And with our business model and giving shared ownership, we are going to be putting in place ways to bring up voting topics and democratically decide these. And right now, I'd like to think we have a foundation set that will only be altered by the community as decisions are made. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think that getting feedback from the people who feel like the platform is representing them, like I think that that is part of what has shifted in the internet over the years that people feel frustrated with, like I'm a part of this, you know, platform or whatever that then that platform has shifted their focus and I don't have any control over it. And so now I don't feel like it's necessarily representing what I want to be representing, but what am I supposed to really do about it? You know? So I think that having feedback from people and being able to have input from the people who are, you know, essentially, I don't want to say building the company because I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that the people that are actually on the tech side of it are doing a lot too. But like, you can't have one without the other. And if the people who are selling there don't feel like it's going in a direction that they want it to go in, then then that makes this weird conflict. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I look at our vendors as our partners as well because the marketplace doesn't exist without vendors. And I think that marketplaces in general should feel that way. I mean, you just Google on the news, like what's going on with Uber and the idea that these like, you know, these drivers are working day and night, yet they're not considered partners, employees of the company. They're just, you know, cattle to be slaughtered. And you're like, well, that's not the right way to have a a vendor relationship. And so that's a little of what we're trying to do is bring vendors in to be closer to the ownership group so that they're involved in the decisions as they're being made, right? Because- as a marketplace, who is the customer, right? Who's the customer in a marketplace? You know, you could say it's the vendor or the buyer yeah. or both, right? But if you invite one half of the marketplace in as an owner, well, now the customer, one's a partner and one's a customer, right? And, and we're kind of treating the vendors more as partners even in the fact that we're trying to support them, but also make decisions alongside them. Yeah, I like that. I hope so. Again, this is a new venture, so we're kind of breaking the mold in a lot of areas where, you know, hopefully what we're doing is uh, the market likes and, and, and we'll see growth from it. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, and this kind of goes into my next thing that I want you to talk about, but I think that what I have seen both in like my own feelings and also in, you know, all the people that I talk to over the past, like couple years of the pandemic is that it feels like it has felt like for years that you are kind of just that like cog in a wheel, you know, like I'm just doing this. I'm like, trying to make it work and I'm I'm trying to make money so that I can do like normal things like pay for braces for my 900 children that I have you know like and then there's these people on Wall Street who are just like milk every last dime out of everybody that is participating in this business model and yet you feel like there's no real alternatives and I think you know I mean that, that kind of speaks to like larger societal problems but I think that what we have seen or what I have seen, and I'd be interested to know your take on this is like over, you know, you started this company right before COVID started. And then like kind of what have you seen over these years of the pandemic? Like how has that shifted or changed? If any? Yeah, well, I do think the pandemic, because everyone had to quickly start working remote, living remote and going more online had expedited our entire society into a world apart, you know, because as much as the world's reopening and people are going out more, I think the pandemic expedited that online experience and in, in the online living, so to speak. You know, I mean, how many people probably started having groceries delivered just because during the pandemic and now they continue to have it? Oh, I'll keep doing Instacart or whatever it is. You know, I'm not going to go to the store and actually see another human. So the online world is rapidly changing. I think it was expedited because of the pandemic. To your point, I think though that is also a negative in terms of community and feel. And I mean, again, I know this isn't a political podcast, (laughs) but at the end of the day, when you look at like how maybe depression is on the rise and anxiety is on the rise, and I think it's because humans want human connection, whether that's virtual, physical, whatever, you want to feel like we're all in this together. and the online world that's owned by wall street makes it feel like we're not all in this together. We're, as you said, cogs in a wheel, we're marching to whatever we're told to do. And I mean, that's depressing. (laughs) That sucks. So the question is how do we make the world we want? Right. And to your thing, I, to the pandemic, we definitely saw some good growth in the pandemic. This year is an interesting year. Last year we grew 170%. So we had a good growth year last year. And last month, we were 15% up from last January. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens because you know this recession is looming in the economy. The layoffs are happening. And so we're going to see what happens with the ripple effects after the pandemic, I think, this year, right? In terms of the future of community, that's really where, where I'm trying to focus a lot of our energy because maybe this is a personal feeling, a gut feeling, but I think people are yearning for something more caring and community oriented, right? I mean, like nobody wants to feel like you're just part of a cog, right? You, you no one wants to feel that way. And, but that's the world we're building and we're doing it because money dictates it. And when you look at marketplaces, the product in marketplaces and social media for that matter is people. People are the product. The product isn't the product. Because yes, you know, you might be buying a handmade scarf from someone and you think the scarf's the product, but to the marketplace, those two users on the marketplace are the product. The humans are the product. And 
I think that means that humans can make a decision to be on platforms where them being the product goes to a better cause than just, you know, now here's a whole not- now politically, here's a whole other, other aspect that I think is being overlooked is that money makes money. And I think Lauren, you've probably heard that term before, right? <laughs> well, money compounds, but rich people or, or rich corporations, they make more money. What do they do with it? They reinvest it. They reinvest it. They reinvest it. That money never comes back into society, right? And that's where the income gap is happening, right? And the middle class is eroding. Well, in a model like we're trying to create, the profits we make not only go to charities, but what do charities do with it? They spend it on utilities and things they need and employment, and the money goes back into society, right? So it's all about putting money back into society to then filter through society versus large corporations who actually are taking money out of society, right? They take the money out of society and it creates that income gap. And it's only going to keep getting worse. And that's why people are seeing the middle class erode and it's either, you know, you're rich or you're poor. So a lot of this all wraps into kind of my theories on how we can build a better online economy. But at the end of the day, the only way it works is people. The only way it works, people are money, right? It's either you go out and raise $100 million in venture capital. At that point, you're working for the money or you create a revolution of people, in which case you're working for the people, right? But it'll only work if people rally around it because people are the ones that can make change. And the hope is with this whole mission is that people give a damn. And they want to get involved because they know they're supporting something that's trying to do something good for not just them, but the whole world. Let me say this one thing. I have a good friend who's quite a cynic. And <laughs> when, I, when I started the company we were talking about, he's like, well, you're going to learn one of two things. Either people really care and you'll be excited or you're going to get very depressed when you realize nobody gives a shit. <laughs> and all they care about is overnight shipping from Prime. Well, I think there's probably some truth to that. But I think that... I do feel that shift. And I think that, I mean, I completely agree with everything that you've said. And I think one thing that I actually wrote down when you started this kind of line of talking was, you know, talking about the pandemic and having your groceries delivered and all of that. And like, you know, I was one of those. I was pregnant when the pandemic started. And so I like never left the house. And then all of a sudden, I mean, probably within the last six months, I can remember talking to my husband and I'm like, I hit a wall. Like, I am so lonely and so tired of being so disconnected. And I think that that's not just me. I mean, there's nothing about my life that's like particularly different than anybody else's. But like that disconnect that people have felt is so raw and real, like, I don't know if I would say post pandemic, but you know, in whatever phase of life we're in right now, that it is like something that people are kind of having to deal with. Like, where do I go from here? What's the next step? And I agree with you, like in looking at how does that translate to like the world is moving online more and more and more, and that is only going to continue. That's not going to change. So how do you make the online space not just like, horrible, (laughs) you know, because we can't avoid it. Like it's there. So like, how do you make it what you want it to be instead of just like what the capitalism machine like automatically creates? Yeah. And it doesn't mean there isn't a world for both. I mean, there's always corporations in the real world too, but it's just, how do you at least have some blend of that feel online? Right. I think handmade has a lot to do with that though. I mean, like, so for instance, one thing people always say about handmade, which is great, when you buy a handmade product online, whether you buy it on Etsy or Go Imagine or somewhere else, oftentimes it comes with a little handwritten note. 
maybe a little smiley face they put on it. You know, whatever it is, when you open that package, you feel like it came from a human that cares about you versus when you buy something on Amazon. Yes, you got it overnight and it showed up immediately, but it came in just a box with this bubble wrap that you know was in a warehouse and it was just, there was no feel at all and you bought toilet paper. So the, the actual emotional response of opening a box that comes from, let's say, an Amazon versus a handmade seller also provides a little different in the field, right? Like I've got a mug on my desk right now that was hand-thrown pottery and I knew so I know someone made it. Uh, when it was sent to me, it came with a nice little note inside of it. It's it's a different feel. It's a different feel. And there's and there's a need for both. And there's a need for there both. Is. The problem is right now the online world only has one, which is that corporate side. So that's really the void we're trying to fill in this new mission that quite frankly only works as people rally around it and Early indications are we're getting a lot of people to rally around it, which is exciting. We have a lot of development to do in the platform to make it better and more modern. But uh, yeah, I'm excited about the future and uh, I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about it on your podcast. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm excited to see what y'all do. I think so much of what you said is what we as handmade sellers have seen and felt and experienced over, you know, the years of selling online. And I think that you know, talking about the impact that it has on the more individual level of the seller is that, you know, I mean, and I've talked about this extensively in my podcast, but like me starting my handmade shop, like completely changed the trajectory of our lives. My husband was active duty military and he was able to leave the military because I had this job and whatever. And even if you look on a broader like societal scale with like micro lending and stuff, there's so much of the handmade space that does skew uh, female. And typically when you have, you know, women that are making money, supplementing incomes and stuff, it then gets reinvested into the family versus, you know, the larger model of sort of that yeah. Wall Street investor, not to hate on the guys. because y'all are bad <laughs> too, No, listen, just- <laughs> I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is the mission that we're after, after ourselves and kind of like what we're trying to do with the company. And, yeah, you know, I'd say 90% of the sellers on Go Imagine are, are female. And I think that's wonderful seeing so many women running their own businesses. And I am excited about the future, seeing so many people rallying around what we're doing. You know, there's, I'd say for every maker that says, eh, you know, I'm not really interested, we have 10 makers that are saying, this is incredible. We want to get behind it. The one thing I'll tell you, which is an interesting feeling, though, is I think because of what has gone on with Etsy over the past 15 years is there's a sentiment with makers, they feel a little scorned, right? Because the the handmade community in the early, late 2000s, early 2010s really rallied around Etsy and helped build it up. In fact, to the point where the last CEO, Chad Dickerson, he said in a stockholder brief, he said the reason for Etsy's fast growth was due to makers promoting their own shops. It was the makers that grew Etsy. And then eventually they had so much money, they could take that flywheel effect and then start reinvesting in marketing and keep growing. Now, as we look at bringing on new makers into Go Imagine, I've definitely felt from talking to makers, they feel almost like you know their last boyfriend cheated on them. So they're a little skeptical about the next one, right? I mean, that's kind of what I was like going to earlier in the conversation when you say like, when you have a platform that starts out this way, like Etsy did, and then turns into a company that's all about profits for Wall Street, you end up feeling like uh, like you kind of got a little bit screwed. Like they kind of tricked you a little bit into what they were trying to do. And I think that that 
speaks to, I mean, kind of what you said at the beginning when, you know, if you ask people about Etsy and they kind of give you an earful, I tend to have like sort of more neutral feelings about it just because like, I don't really feel any sort of loyalty to Etsy. It's just kind of there as a platform, but I can understand why people feel that way. And I can understand the desire to be involved in a community that you don't feel that way about. Yeah. Well, and that's actually another, one of the big reasons that we're moving towards this model this year and giving ownership and board representation to our makers is because it's a way for us to say what we're telling you now, we're committing to long-term to the point where makers will have board members with full transparency and voting rights and everything else so that there isn't backroom dealings happening where we're saying one thing, but we have plans that are different. That's a little bit, you know, in that corporate world where what they were presenting outwardly maybe in 2010 wasn't what they were saying in the boardroom for their future goal. And and my hope is that by giving this ownership and giving this these voting rights and everything to the makers, it's just showing our commitment to the handmade community and to the makers, which hopefully will get more of that buy-in saying like we're we're not we're not going down that same path and trajectory. We are doing this for the handmade community along with children in need that we're donating to. But that's a big part of it. I mean, like, I think to a degree, makers and artists feel a little lost right now online because they don't feel like there's anything for them as Etsy moves away from handmade. Yeah, I agree. John, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and everybody else that gets to listen. I really enjoy talking to you. I think that this is uh, kind of a new wave of what's happening. And I'm really excited to be a part of it and to watch it play out over the next few years. Well, I very much appreciate you having me uh, join your podcast and yeah. Thanks for everything. Good luck with your house. I know you're dealing with some things over there too. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want to find you, want to learn more, just give them the places, all the places to find you if they want to look it up and, and check you out. Absolutely. So yeah. So obviously goimagine.com, check out the marketplace. You can find a lot of information on the marketplace there. If you want to get involved with the community, we do have a, a fairly big uh, Go Imagine Facebook group. It's got 7,500 members in it right now. Uh, look up the official makers group. There are some other uh, Go Imagine groups happening now, but the Go Imagine official maker group, we do a lot of updates and webinars and posts there. And uh, yeah, follow us on Instagram, Pinterest, and you know, everywhere else you follow things. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, John. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. I hope that you have found this episode helpful and interesting, and it's given you things to think about and work with within your own business and your own shop. If you have questions or you want to continue this conversation and continue to learn with me, the best way of doing that is to head to my website, laurenkeplinger.com and sign up for one of the free downloads that I have, whether it is the Ultimate Etsy Starter Kit if you are brand new to selling online or the Etsy SEO checklist if you already have a shop set up and you want to learn how to optimize it for search engine optimization a little bit better. Either one of those will get you on my email list. That is the best way to connect with me at this point. I'm a little bit inconsistent with my social media usage, um, but I do regularly send emails with going ons around the e-commerce world. 
um, updates, helpful tips. I just sent out recently a free training that you could watch without even signing up. It was just there. So that is the best way to get the most up-to-date information from me and also to connect and be able to ask questions and all of that. I will see you next week back here on the podcast. Same time, same place. Bye for now.